Good morning. In today's headlines, kibbutz of horror, soldiers discovered dozens of murdered babies, kids, women and elderly people in an Israeli community near Gaza. Meanwhile, could shells fired from Syria signal a broadening conflict? A survivor of the terrorist attack on the music festival in Israel shares his story with us. Find out how he was able to make it out alive as Hamas hunted down festival goers. The Hamas terrorist attack on Israel is bringing Jewish communities together worldwide. Entity visited the D.C. area vigil to hear perspectives. In response to Hamas's attacks on Israel, many are looking at Iran's support for the terrorist organization. Two Democratic senators have joined Republicans in an appeal to President Biden. House Republicans will attempt to elect a new House Speaker today, but not before voting on a rule change for nomination. An EU official accusing Elon Musk of allowing disinformation to spread on his platform X. We have Musk's response to the accusation. It's great to have you with us this morning. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, October 11th. And we want to start out today with the latest updates on the war in Israel. Yes, this morning Israel launched strikes inside Lebanon after an IDF military post was targeted with anti-tank missiles near the Lebanese border. The Lebanese terror group Hezbollah said they fired guided missiles at an Israeli site to retaliate for the killing of three of its members on Monday. Meanwhile, the Israeli Air Force says it destroyed Hamas aircraft detection system in Gaza. Israel says the first plane carrying weapons from the U.S. arrived late last evening. The IDF says cooperation between U.S. and Israeli militaries is critical to ensure regional security and stability in times of war. So for more updates, we want to bring in Dor Levinter. He's the CEO of Epoch Israel, live routes right outside of Tel Aviv, and he is going to give us more insight into the situation on the ground. Dor, it's really good to see you as always. So please start by giving us the latest update. What's, this, what's the situation right now on the ground? Okay, so the fight is still going on, as you mentioned. Uh, the actually what's most in, in, is interesting is what's happening in the north of Israel right now. It's getting heater, and we know Hezbollah is there. Uh, Iranian, you know, they control Hezbollah. They move also forces to Syria. We see movements on the border. We see missiles firing at uh, uh, IDF's uh, bases. So. This is the most, uh, the most, you know, the, the, the focus is going over there, going to the north, eyes to the north. Uh, attack in Gaza gonna happen probably to, uh, to, to move, to shift toward uh, moving inside Gaza in a few days, probably three or four days. That's what I heard from officials uh, I've talked with earlier. Hmm. So let's talk about um, the move towards or the offense in Gaza. So Hamas reportedly, they store weapons below mosques and schools and even allegedly have their headquarters below a hospital. So what can you, what can you, tell, us, uh, what can you tell us about this? So the attempt is mostly to hide. They are not human. So what they do is use humans as a shield. Uh, so that's the basic strategy. Just use people as human shields and hide wherever they can. Now, the reason I'm asking is because um, I wonder how you see Israel handle this as they step up their offense, like you just mentioned, because Biden was just stressing the laws of war, for instance. So how do you see Israel will handle this? Well, the difference between Israel and Hamas is that Israelis are human beings, as I mentioned before. And we do things according to law. I myself was uh, served in the in the military. I'm a combat officer. We have laws, and we do things first of all because we are human beings, and second of all because there are laws of war, just like Biden says. And at times of war, there will be people hurt, civilians too. But we Israel, you know, Israeli soldiers are trained to act by law, so there is no option to act anywhere, you know, beside that. 
Now, w one more thing that comes to mind is when you say the Hamas uses the Palestinians as human shields, how do Palestinians inside the country, how do they view Hamas? Well, uh, the Palestinians in Gaza are controlled by Hamas. They are, they are almost like hostages. They have no much to do. They move to uh, going to the south, trying to escape Gaza. Uh, and, and this is the situation, really. They don't have much to do. Uh, we've talked with a parliament member today that said that uh, the Palestinians inside Gaza has two options. First, to help stop the terrorists and kill the terrorists inside Gaza. And the second is to, to run away as there is no third option. Mm. Well, we will keep a close eye on this. Keep us updated also. Thank you so much, Dora LeVinter. Thank you. The horrors of the Hamas terror attack on Israel continue to unfold four days after the invasion. Soldiers have uncovered brutal scenes of death in another kibbutz with babies, children, women and the elderly slaughtered. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the latest developments and a caution to viewers, this report contains content that some may find disturbing. The Israeli death toll from the Hamas terror attack now stands at around 1,200 people, with thousands more injured. At least 14 Americans were also killed, a minimum of 20 still missing. The Kafar Azar kibbutz was a scene of unthinkable war crimes. The closeness of Gaza, now billowing with smoke, can be seen just across a field. An Israeli journalist described the gruesome discoveries. Babies, their heads cut off. The Jewish Chronicle reported that around 40 babies were found murdered, some beheaded. It's not a war. It's not a battlefield. It's a massacre. This IDF major says the terrorists must have shed their humanity to commit the atrocities they committed. To see baby carriages with bullet holes in them and blood, who goes up to a baby and kills a baby? Who kills a mother? I, I see the bodies in their homes. The major says a common thread can be seen in the cold-blooded murder, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or Hamas. It's this absolute disregard for human life. And I know for our soldiers and for our people and the mothers and fathers like myself, we have to see this because the road ahead is going to be very difficult. Here, soldiers carry out bodies and line them up with the growing pile. Remnants of the Hamas attack littered the ground, the bodies of dead terrorists, a motorcycle used to invade Israel. Houses that once held children's laughter now turn to rubble as blood-stained floors tell a story of the horror that took place here. More videos continue to emerge. A car here is shot up by terrorists. Here, terrorists try to murder women. Hamas terrorists live-streamed an entire family being held hostage at gunpoint. They have not been seen since. As horrors unfold on the ground in Israel, some U.S. lawmakers remain silent, like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib seen here on Fox News. Congresswoman, do you have a comment on Hamas terrorists talking about baby heads? You have nothing to say about Hamas terrorists talking about baby heads? Colorado State Representative Tim Hernandez also refused to condemn the slaughter. And the fact that you can't condemn women and children and elderly people being murdered in the streets. What about it? In retaliation for the atrocities, Israeli jets have been pounding Gaza with hundreds of airstrikes, reducing homes and neighborhoods to rubble. The IDF has bolstered troops and tanks along the border as speculation of a possible Israeli ground incursion into Gaza grows. The Palestinian Health Ministry says airstrikes have killed at least 950 people in Gaza. Meanwhile, other threats have also appeared. Shells were reportedly fired from Syria into Israel on Tuesday night. The IDF retaliated with artillery and mortar fire directed toward the source of the attacks in Syria. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden has denounced Hamas, calling the terrorist attack on Israel an act of sheer evil. Biden also stressed U.S. support for Israel as it mourns the killing of more than a thousand people. Here's more on Biden's comments from yesterday. 
This was an act of sheer evil. President Joe Biden denounced the Hamas terrorist group and stressed U.S. support for Israel on Tuesday. We stand with Israel. He confirmed that American citizens were among those killed over the weekend. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Among them, at least 14 American citizens killed. This is terrorism. But sadly, for the Jewish people, it's not new. Hamas launched its surprise attack against Israel on Saturday. Israel has struck back with airstrikes as the death toll from both sides continues to mount. Biden outlined the U.S. military assistance being sent to help Israel in its fight, including ammunition. We're going to make sure that Israel does not run out of these critical assets. The first plane of American ammunition landed in Israel Tuesday, and a U.S. carrier strike group also arrived in the eastern Mediterranean. The White House says it's to strengthen a deterrence posture against countries that might want to widen the war. He also voiced concern for Americans being held hostage. We now know that American citizens are among those being held by Hamas. I've directed my team to share intelligence and deploy additional experts from across the United States government to consult with and advise Israeli counterparts on hostage recovery efforts. Moments after Biden's speech, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said many Americans were still missing following the mass killings in Israel. We believe that there are 20 or more Americans who at this point are missing, but I want to underscore and stress that does not mean necessarily that there are 20 or more American hostages. Just that is the number who are currently unaccounted for. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to Israel on Thursday to learn more about the situation on the ground and to send a message of support. Meanwhile, U.S. law enforcement agencies were taking steps to disrupt any domestic threat that may emerge. In cities across the United States of America, police departments have stepped up. Security around centers for, of Jewish life. There is no place for hate in America. Not against Jews, not against Muslims, not against anybody. The FBI said earlier it's closely monitoring unfolding events, but added it does not have specific and credible intelligence, indicating a threat to the United States stemming from the Hamas attacks in Israel. House Republicans will attempt to select a new House Speaker today. But first, they're expected to meet to debate and vote on a rule change in efforts to avoid a drawn-out process. Until a new Speaker is elected, the House can't pass bills to address the crisis in Israel. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the search for the next House Speaker. House GOP members meet at 10 a.m. Wednesday to consider a proposal to raise the threshold for Speakership nomination. If adopted, the threshold will be raised from a simple majority of the conference to a majority of the House before moving to the floor for a vote. The proposal suggests members vote by secret ballot for two rounds to try to secure the needed 217 votes after having a majority of support from the conference. If that hasn't happened, the third round would be a manual roll call. If a candidate doesn't get 217 after five rounds of voting, then remaining and new candidates can emerge for nomination. If the rule change is successful, it could avert a long, drawn-out battle, like the 15 ballot rounds it took in former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's case. The candidate could only afford to lose four GOP votes in order to be nominated. Republicans have not produced a clear frontrunner for the position, even after a two-hour closed-door debate between candidates on Tuesday. Attendees described the exchange between Representatives Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise as respectful and healthy, but were not optimistic on a quick conclusion when electing their next leader. Representative Thomas Massey predicted the chance of electing a nominee at the conference vote Wednesday at 2%. Both Jordan and Scalise have leadership experience and large bases of support. McCarthy has urged his colleagues not to nominate him again, but says he will do what the conference wants him to do. Congressman Troy Nell said with the conference being so widely split, McCarthy might come out ahead if the vote goes to a second or third ballot. House Democrats have nominated Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries for the House Speaker role. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, after sending billions to Ukraine, can the U.S. afford to support another war? We bring in an expert to give us the details and more. Israel now preparing for a massive ground invasion of Gaza. We explain what the Gaza Strip is, where it's located, and why it's hard to target terrorists in the densely populated region.
Welcome back. In response to Hamas' attacks on Israel, many are looking at Iran's support for the terrorist organization. Two Democratic senators are calling on President Biden to freeze $6 billion in Iranian assets. Hamas has carried out this attack, not as a legitimate government, but as a pure terrorist organization. Any country or government that is found to be supportive of this terrorist organization should have the most severe sanctions imposed upon them immediately to shut down the support of these terroristic barbaric actions. The money was part of a prisoner swap deal the Biden administration negotiated with Iran last month. The Iranian regime agreed to release five Americans in exchange for five Iranians held in the U.S., plus the unfreezing of $6 billion of Iranian assets in South Korea. Democratic Senator John Tester and Joe Manchin said on Tuesday that Biden should immediately freeze the money. Senator Tester said the U.S. should review its options to hold Iran accountable for any support it may have provided. Twenty GOP senators have made similar calls. During Tuesday's press briefing, the White House said it stands by the decision to unfreeze the Iranian assets. House lawmakers want to send Israel $2 billion to bolster its Iron Dome defense system. The air defense system intercepts and destroys short-range rockets and artillery shells fired at Israel. A bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced a House bill to fund the Iron Dome yesterday. Congresswoman Claudia Tenney is a co-sponsor. She said the Iron Dome system has intercepted over 3,000 missiles in the past few days. Representative Josh Gottheimer said the bill is critical in supporting a system that saves millions of innocent lives. Lawmakers from both parties want to support Israel. However, with the House Speaker position vacant, business is stalled. Republicans will meet today to vote on a new speaker. And more on the Israeli war. In its mission to eliminate the terrorist group Hamas, Israel is now preparing to invade the Gaza Strip. What is the Gaza Strip and why is the invasion risky? Israeli battle helicopters, tanks and soldiers prepare for a mass invasion of the Gaza Strip. We are very ready. We are ready from the air and from the land. The invasion will be one of Israel's riskiest military actions yet. The Gaza Strip is a small Palestinian enclave. It's one of the two main Palestinian territories, but is entirely cut off from the much larger West Bank. It's surrounded by Israel to the east and Egypt to the southwest. It's one of the most crowded areas of the world. This area is extremely, extremely difficult for soldiers because very narrow streets, um, very easy to set up um, ambushes against Israeli soldiers, booby trap doorways. Harley Lippmann was a key broker of the Abraham Accords, the peace agreements between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. Lippmann says the Gaza Strip is very small, smaller than Chicago, but with a population of over two million people. Hamas has very few traditional military bases, so the terrorists hide among the people of Gaza, making them very hard to target. It's a tragedy for the Palestinian people because Hamas doesn't care about them. The Hamas leaders are hidden in well-fortified bunkers away from Israeli forces or have fled the nation, where they leave the Palestinian people to deal with Israel's um, military action. Many Palestinians have already died from Israel's preliminary airstrikes. Hospitals in Gaza are overwhelmed with mass casualties and are running low on medical supplies. Ambulances are running out of fuel. The UN is calling for both Israel and Hamas to immediately cease attacks that could harm civilians. The organization says that at least 200,000 Palestinians now have no homes, either because their homes were destroyed or because they had to flee for their lives. It's currently unclear when the ground invasion will begin. A quarter, NTV News. And now we want to bring in retired Naval Officer Lieutenant Stephen Rogers live for more details about the U.S. involvement in the war. Good morning, Lieutenant. It's good to have you. Now, the U.S. is still looking for evidence for Iran's direct involvement in the Hamas attack. Now, how would Iran's, if they would find that um, evidence, how would that change things for the U.S.? Would it affect U.S. involvement in the war, for instance? Well, it would, but uh, look, I believe that there's enough evidence there with Hamas and even Hezbollah 
uh, bragging about the fact that Iran was involved in the planning stages of this. So I, I have no idea what the White House is waiting for. But to answer your question, uh, when the White House is satisfied, uh, we may have to see direct U.S. military uh, intervention. Uh, right now, we have a, a, a forward power out there. That's our carrier strike group, and that's supposed to serve as a warning to Iran. But uh, before we get militarily involved, uh, we're going to have to have evidence according to what the White House uh, is asking. Hmm. And if that should happen, how much more aid or intervention can the U.S. afford in that case, considering um, NATO has also been warning about low uh, amounts of ammunition for Ukraine and, of course, the war general in Ukraine and Russia. Well, I've got to tell you this, that this may be a uh, time to make a very critical decision to stop uh, sending aid to Ukraine and start sending it to Israel. We've got the uh, uh, ammunition, we've got the weapons, we've got the manpower. We have everything Israel needs to defend themselves. Uh, but uh, we don't have enough if we're going to fight a two-front war. We are fighting a proxy war. Uh, with Russia and Ukraine, but what's more important to our national security is uh, making sure that the Israelis are defended. So how critical is U.S. aid in the, uh, for Israel? Very critical. Israel has been our closest ally. There are eyes and ears with regard to the geopolitical situation in the Mideast. Uh, no question about it. Israel is the number one nation that we need to protect and make sure uh, that that nation is not severely damaged. And I also want to touch on another topic. President Biden was talking about upholding the laws of war. But as we just heard, Hamas, um, they ha store their weapons underground below hospitals, um, mosques, even schools. So how do you think Israel should be handling that in this situation? Well, the prime minister of Israel, I believe, yesterday uh, sent a message to his troops. From what I understand, uh, you're taking the gloves off. Do what you got to do. Uh, that, to me, is signaling to his military that the rules of war have changed. You go in and you do whatever you have to do and you won't be questioned. And that's a problem we have with our White House. There are no rules of war in this particular war. Those individuals, those terrorists went in and they killed babies. They beheaded babies. They slaughtered people. So you know what? I go along with the prime minister of Israel. You go in, you exterminate Hamas, exterminate Hezbollah, exterminate every terrorist off the face of the earth, and then our problems are over. I see. And for uh, China, for instance, China, people have been looking at China because they, that is one of the few countries that actually, with actual leverage over Iran because of the finances and the money flow there. So some were hoping that they could be a peacemaker, although they have not really said anything or condemned the attacks. Now, what role do you think they're playing here? I think China is not going to play much of a role because their eyes are focused on Taiwan. Look, they may be looking at this as a great distraction, uh, thinking about, well, the United States is now fighting a proxy war uh, in Ukraine with Russia. Now they're involved uh, with Israel. Well, if they decide, meaning China decides to make a, a move on Taiwan, what are we to do? I mean, we can't spread ourselves out uh, so thin that uh, we actually get affected where we can't defend ourselves. So I think President Xi is going to sit back. He's going to see how this goes. And unfortunately, he might be making a critical decision in the near future with regard to Taiwan. Hmm. Thank you so much for a in-depth look there, Lieutenant Stephen Rogers. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And we are heading to break now. Carrie Lake is running for a U.S. Senate seat. How will her newly announced candidacy affect the race in Arizona? The Justice Department had updated the indictment on New York Congressman George Santos. Find out what additional charges he faces when we come back. Welcome back. Carrie Lake of Arizona formally announced her bid to run for a U.S. Senate seat yesterday. Lake, who lost an Arizona gubernatorial bid, is a Trump ally and has already received an endorsement from the former president. If she wins a Republican nod, it could become a three-way battle between current independent Senator Kirsten Sinema and Democrat Ruben Gallego. Our border is wide open in Arizona. We know it because we're feeling it here in Arizona. There is an absolute invasion in our country with millions of people pouring in. Arizona is one of eight competitive seats Democrats seek to defend next year as they try to protect their narrow Senate majority. 
Lake will vie for the nomination against a handful of Republican hopefuls, including Pinal County Sheriff Mark Lamb and businessman Brian Wright. New York Republican Congressman George Santos is facing more charges. The Justice Department on Tuesday announced an updated indictment against him. In a superseding indictment on Tuesday, federal prosecutors accused Congressman George Santos of 23 counts related to campaign fraud. The charges include one count of conspiracy, two counts of wire fraud, two counts of false statements, two counts of falsification of records, two counts of aggravated identity theft, and one count of access device fraud. That's in addition to the 13 counts he originally faced in May, which are seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of false statements. The Justice Department said Santos allegedly stole the identities of his donors and then used their credit cards to ring up over $44,000 in unauthorized charges. They said Santos transferred the vast majority of that money into his bank account. According to prosecutors, Santos used the rest of the money to inflate his campaign's fundraising numbers to the Federal Elections Commission in a bid to qualify for financial and logistical support from a Republican Party committee. The congressman on Tuesday told reporters he had no comment on the superseding indictment. He pleaded not guilty to the original charges and has resisted calls to resign. Santos is due back in federal court on October 27th. He will likely face a lengthy prison term if convicted. The Trump Organization's ex-CFO said the penthouse apartment in Trump Tower was not a significant property. That was one of Alan Weiselberg's responses yesterday during his testimony in the Trump financial fraud case. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. The state grilled Trump's former chief financial officer Alan Weiselberg on Tuesday about his involvement in valuing Trump's assets. As the CFO, Weiselberg signed off on numerous financial statements that are at the heart of the state's case. Weiselberg generally testified that he signed off on the financial statements, but he didn't have a clear understanding of the basic accounting principles that needed to be followed. He said the process for preparing the statements involved several people in the Trump organization. Weiselberg would have skimmed through the statement focusing on the larger assets before signing it. The CFO said he relied on the accounting firm Mazars to conduct its own review. They would have advised him if anything needed to be corrected. The state specifically asked Weiselberg about a 2016 financial statement submitted to Forbes that said the size of Donald Trump's apartment in Trump Tower was around 30,000 square feet, when it actually was closer to 11,000 square feet. Weiselberg explained that he would not have paid attention to it because he didn't focus on assets that were 5% or less of the overall net worth. Other notable witnesses expected in the coming weeks include Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Donald Trump. Weiselberg said he didn't directly consult with the Trumps about the financial statements. New records show that President Biden was involved in his son and brother's businesses as vice president. America First Legal published the records from the National Archives following a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. Archives records show that then-Vice President Biden's office exchanged over 19,000 emails with Hunter Biden's investment firm Rosemont Seneca, over 4,000 emails with Hunter Biden himself, over 1,700 emails with his brother James Biden, and over 3,700 emails with James Biden's Lion Hall Group. Biden has previously claimed he was not involved in his son and brother's business dealings. America First Legal said on X yesterday, quote, there was extensive co-mingling between them. The House Oversight Committee, which has been investigating the Biden family business dealings, also commented, saying Biden's statement doesn't match his track record. A U.S. Navy service member pleaded guilty to federal felony charges yesterday. Petty Officer Thomas Zhao of California pleaded guilty to conspiring with a Chinese intelligence officer. He admitted to engaging in a corrupt scheme to collect and transmit sensitive transmitting information to China in exchange for bribes. Entities Cost MS has the details. Thomas Zhao worked at Ventura County Naval Base in Port Wainimi, California. There he was responsible for installing, repairing and servicing electrical equipment on U.S. military installations. Zhao has been in custody since his arrest on August 3rd. According to the August indictment against him, Zhao allegedly sent information to a Chinese intelligence officer posing as a maritime economic researcher 
between August 2021 and May 2023 in exchange for receiving nearly $15,000 in bribes, including operational plans for a major military exercise in the Indo-Pacific. According to prosecutors, Zhao took screenshots of operational orders of military training exercises and passed them to the intelligence officer. Zhao also stands accused of transmitting photos of blueprints and diagrams of a U.S. radar system stationed on a military base in Okinawa, Japan. He further admitted to using sophisticated encrypted communication methods to transmit the information, as well as destroying evidence and concealing his relationship with the intelligence officer. If convicted, Zhao could face up to 20 years in prison. Sentencing is scheduled for January 8, 2024. Cost MNS, NTD News. Up next, a first-hand account of the horrific terrorist attack on the Supernova Festival in Israel. We speak to a survivor who managed to live to tell the story by hiding while Hamas terrorists hunted people down for 10 hours. D.C. residents gather in support of Israel at a vigil hosted by the Jewish community. NTD was on the scene to hear from those affected. Welcome back. We now hear from a survivor of the Hamas terrorist attack on the Supernova Festival in Israel. Zach Bernard joins us live to share his first-hand account. Zach, good morning and thank you for coming on the show. And first of all, I am so sorry that you had to go through this. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, it's very hard times lately. Um, there was a lot going on there. A lot of people didn't make it out alive as I did. Um, yeah, very hard times. They literally came into the festival at around 6.30 in the morning. Um, everyone was dancing, enjoying themselves. And suddenly rockets started falling everywhere. Um, we ran to the cars, start driving out towards the main road. And as soon as we got to the main road, there was just gunshot everywhere. Um, there were tens of them just walking next to cars and shooting people inside of the cars. And we just ran for our lives as fast as we could. Um, a lot of people didn't manage to escape and were just shot while running away. Um, we managed to hide for like a few hours. Um, and when we're hiding, you could hear the terrorists just walking everywhere and just shooting everything they could see or hear. Um, they've passed me at least about seven to ten times, a few meters away, and luckily they haven't seen me. Um, it was just a, no words to say it. They just killed and slaughtered everyone that was that was there. How were myself, you able I'm to still... hide? when they were that close to you? Um, there, there were so many people running everywhere. Um, I, we managed to jump under a lot of leaves that were near the tree and just cover ourselves. Um, people were just running everywhere. I guess they just seen other people and focused on them. And it was pure luck, I guess, I don't know. Um, what was going yeah, through we your mind at enough. that time? Praying to God that I'll make it, thinking of my family. Um, it, it was terrifying. I couldn't think of, I was just looking at the sky and tree and just thinking to myself, sending my mum a voice record that I might not come back. Um, yeah, just, I never thought I'd be able to get out alive. I never thought that I was going to be sitting here saying it, saying this stuff. Um, still very blurry it looks like a big dream bad bad dream it's i'm so glad that you were able to survive this tragedy and my condolences go out to the victims and their families can you tell us about the funeral that you just attended um yes it was 
one of my best friends. His name is Dor Malaga. Um, he had a jewelry store um, inside the festival. And because he had the jewelry store, he went to take care of it and close it down. And in the process, they, they killed him. At first, we thought he was kidnapped because we could see a video on Telegram showing him being held by a terrorist. And yesterday morning, um, we got the word that they found him dead in the field, shot in the head a few times. Um, his parents couldn't even recognize the body. They just, I don't know what they've done to him. It's just unimaginable. Um, yeah, it must be so hard for you to relive all this. Um, yes, yes. I just came back from the, from the grave because I couldn't be there last night because there were so much people. Um, it's, I just I don't know how to say it. One moment you're enjoying yourself in a music festival with thousands of people and ten minutes after you're running for your life and praying that you won't get shots and bullets just flying everywhere and bombs are falling from the sky. Um, it's just, I can't believe it, it, just, it sounds like a movie, but, but that, that's not a movie, that's what happened to me and to thousands of other people, that most of them didn't make it, and they were killed, and the women, I don't want to think about what's going on with all the women that were taken, it's just, um, everyone keeps saying to me, you're lucky that you made it out alive, and I'm, just, I'm thinking of the other people that haven't. Yes, hopefully any hostages and will be returned safely. And Zach, how are you able to cope with all this? Um, I'm not really thinking about what happened to me at the moment. I'm not really coping. At the moment, we're just trying to help his family and his parents. And a lot of worried mothers and dads that are keep phoning me all day and asking me if I've seen their son, if I've seen them, their, their daughter. And I haven't got any words to say to them. Literally, I might have seen them. I might have hired with them. But I just can't remember. It was so much chaotic. At the moment, I'm just trying to do my best to help other people and to, to, to stay strong. Once everything ends, I'll start coping with what I've been through. But at the moment, we haven't got really time to do it. We just need to help as much as we can and be there for the people that haven't made it. Zach Bernard, a survivor of the Hamas terrorist attack at the Supernova Festival, thank you so much for telling us your story. Thank you. Thank you very much for hearing, and we need to spread the word and let everyone know what happened there. And amid all this horror, the Hamas terrorist attack has brought Jewish communities together worldwide. Grief and despair met with song and prayer at a D.C. area vigil last night. NTD was in attendance to hear from the Jewish community and other D.C. residents. D.C. residents prayed and grieved at the vigil at Addis Israel Congregation Tuesday night. The Hamas terrorist attacks and security failures shocking the Jewish community. It's such a barbaric, horrible thing. People who call themselves men who are really subhumans and then brag about what they've done. What's there to brag about? The powerful show of solidarity with Israel was organized by the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington and the JCRC. And people have to understand that the types of attacks that shocked the world, these were commonplace before Israel existed. There's a term called pogrom. There were these attacks that basically Ma mobs would come and attack Jewish villages and massacre people and rape women and kidnap people and murder people randomly. And that's what we saw. And that's what Israel was established in order to prevent. And unfortunately it happened and Israel has to take action to make sure it doesn't happen again. Gil Proust, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington, told NTD Israel is headed toward tough times and that there's no easy way to respond. Washington, the United States, we need to support Israel and what they're trying to do, which is to prevent this, hor this horrible act from ever happening again. From our community, we need to be able to stand with Israel and show that we care for them, that we're with them, and that we support what they're doing. 
Prue says it's hard to believe an attack like this could happen in this day and age. Everyone that was murdered has ties to people in this community, and we will be suffering and struggling for a long time. Ron Halber, executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Washington, says the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a simple matter of good and bad, as many detractors make it out to be. But Israel on their border lives with these terrorist barbarians who think it's okay to kidnap a six-month-old child, a 90-year-old survivor of Holocaust. It was, it was a riot. All they did, all these people were filled with hate in their heart, and all they wanted to do was kill Jews. These are not people you can make peace with. That's different than the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, with hope Israel has had security coordination with, with there's a hopeful peace at some point. But you can't make peace with people who are willing to do things like that. Halper says if a thousand people came running over the Canadian border to slaughter Americans, the U.S. military response would be swift and decisive. The Jewish Federation of Greater Washington has set up an Israel crisis relief fund and scheduled a rally at Freedom Plaza Friday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Yeah, what can we say? Our thoughts are with the family and the victims, of course. Yes, and stay with us. An EU official is accusing Musk of allowing the spread of disinformation on X. We bring in the host of NTD Business to give us the details in a moment. It's good to have you back with us. The EU's industry chief alleged that disinformation about the Israel-Hamas conflict was spreading on Elon Musk's ex-social media platform. Here with us live is Entity Business host Don Ma. Don, good morning. There you are. Let's see, Don, can you hear me? Yeah, Kevin, I can hear okay, you. Okay, good, we're connected. Yeah. Excellent, so Don, what is the EU official accusing X of? Yeah, so in, in a letter addressed to Elon Musk, uh, the commissioner for their internal market of the European Union, he said that instances of fake and manipulated images and facts uh, were reported on the social media platform. And he urged Musk uh, to correct the situation and you know, even talked about potential fines. And, and now Musk responded to that, uh, to this letter on X, saying, uh, quote, uh, please list the violations you allude to on X so that the public can see them. Um, and then after Musk said that, the EU official responded as well, saying that basically Musk is aware of the violations and didn't provide a list. So basically what the situation looks like right now is the EU official saying Musk uh, violated rules, his X platform, and then Musk asking what rules were violated and then the official responding saying basically, you know, you know what rules you violated. So that's where we at, we're at right now with the situation. Right, and Musk in the safety division on Twitter is, X basically said that they're taking steps to remove this Hamas-affiliated accounts. And this accusations of disinformation about Israel-Hamas conflict spreading on X, that is very serious. So how are X users reacting to this? Yeah, first of all, you're right. Uh, X is taking action uh, in terms of uh, the reported uh, um, disinformation. Um, but it seems like users are taking Musk's side on this, saying that uh, they, the, the EU proposed action against X. So they should be clear on what they're talking about. And I think potentially X users may have a point here. If, you know, if someone is accusing you of something, uh, then it's up to them to prove that you committed that thing, that wrongdoing, um, because you're innocent until proven guilty, right? I think many groups have um, been more critical of Musk ever since he bought Twitter. Um, I mean, I, I do think there is uh, some dis disinformation uh, spreading uh, on the conflict on X, um, but you know, there's there's different disinformation about the conflict on many other social media platforms as, as well, uh, like uh, Telegram, uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, all, all these platforms are seeing some degree of disinformation, disinformation when it comes to the conflict. Uh, but it seems like the media is mainly focused on X. Right. Well, social media is definitely in the spotlight here, and it needs to be taken very carefully, this whole terrorism involvement, because they even use social media sites for recruitment and other things like that. So, Don, do you have anything else for us? Sure. Um, so staying on the war in Israel, uh, America First Legal has filed a lawsuit in Texas. It alleges that President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken violated the Taylor Force Act by subsidizing Palestinian terrorists. 
So the group said on X that a district court in Texas had approved the motion to begin discovery into the case. The lawsuit claims it will show that Biden and Blinken knew about Hamas plans and the outcome of U.S. policies. So America First Legal is a firm led by Stephen Miller. Uh, he's a former senior aide from the Trump White House. Uh, but other than that, that's all from me this morning. Well, thank you for those updates. Don Ma, host of NTD Business, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you as always, Kevin. Yeah, isn't that just such a difficult thing to handle? Getting news from social media. I heard there have been both sides that um, that have been um, spreading false information, right? So there have been video like video game clips floating around, or even um, explosions of a building in South America that have been deemed as um, an attack on. Uh, on, on Gaza and the other way around. So got to be really careful with that. Yeah, users need to be very vigilant to sort through all of that. Yeah. And we are starting the second part of our broadcast right now. Tensions are brewing over some Harvard University student groups laying the blame for the terror attacks on Israel. One CEO wants a list of names. Find out why. Pro-Israel rallies in New York City and other cities across the U.S. We hear from members of the Jewish community who attended the rallies. House Republicans will attempt to elect a new House Speaker today, but not before voting on a rule change for nomination. Welcome back, and to all of you who just joined us, good morning. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, October 11th, and now let's get to some latest updates on the Israel-Hamas war. Israel launched airstrikes inside Lebanon this morning after an Israeli military post was targeted with anti-tank missiles near the Lebanese border. Lebanese terror group Hezbollah says the attack was in retaliation for the killing of three of its members on Monday. The Israeli Air Force says it destroyed a Hamas aircraft detection system in Gaza and the first plane carrying weapons from the U.S. arrived in Israel last night. As for Israel's ongoing siege of the Gaza Strip, Palestine's Energy Authority chairman says Gaza's power and electricity will run in just a few hours. Hamas leader and founder Khalid Mashal gave a speech today asking Muslims in the region to enter Israel. He said it was time for jihad to be applied on the ground instead of just in theory. He also asked for donations to the terrorist organization, calling it financial jihad. Also, Harvard is in the spotlight after 35 student groups said that Israel is solely to blame for all unfolding violence. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the reaction. The groups issued a joint statement by Harvard Palestine Solidarity Group on the situation in Palestine. The letter called Israel an apartheid regime and wrote, We the undersigned student organizations hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence, and called Israel defending itself colonial retaliation. Its letter offered no condemnation of the horrific violence of the Hamas terrorists. Harvard President Claudine Gay responded to the controversy on Tuesday, saying, let there be no doubt that I condemn the terrorist atrocities perpetrated by Hamas. Such inhumanity is abhorrent. Whatever one's individual views of the origins of the long-standing conflicts in the region, a large number of Harvard staff criticized the administration's response in a letter, writing, Hundreds of terrorists infiltrated Israeli towns and houses. Children were killed in front of their parents. Entire families were executed. Grandmothers, mothers, and their babies were kidnapped. The letter said there was no military or other specific objective which meets the definition of a war crime, and said the statement by the Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Groups can be seen as nothing less than condoning the mass murder of civilians based only on their nationality. The letter from Harvard staff criticized the administration for failing to condemn the justifications for violence that come from the Harvard campus. Meanwhile, Harvard alumni Bill Ackman, the CEO of Pershing Square Capital Management, chimed in on X, writing, 
I have been asked by a number of CEOs if Harvard would release a list of the members of each of the organizations that have issued the letter assigning sole responsibility for Hamas's heinous acts to Israel so as to ensure that none of us inadvertently hire any of their members, Ackman added. One should not be able to hide behind a corporate shield when issuing statements supporting the actions of terrorists who we now learn have beheaded babies among other inconceivably despicable acts. National Students for Justice in Palestine announced Monday that it planned to lead a day of resistance in support of Palestine on Thursday, October 12th. Students are being asked to join in with events reportedly planned in New York, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Arizona. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And we're bringing in William Jacobson. He's a Cornell Law School professor and lawyer to shed some light on this particular issue. Good morning, William. Now, to start, what's your concern here with the anti-Israel movement in colleges? Well, first of all, it's based on a complete fabrication that somehow Israel created um, the reason for Hamas to kill over a thousand people, mass rape of women, beheading of babies. This was totally unprovoked. It was, uh, it's a war crime. And unfortunately, student groups around the country are supporting it. In fact, this Thursday is a day of resistance, as you showed on your screen. Why do they use the term resistance? Because that's the English translation of Hamas. And that's very concerning. Um, for your last sentence there, you cut out for just a few seconds. If you could repeat that for us. Sure. Um, so Students for Justice in Palestine is holding a day of resistance this Thursday, as you showed on your screen. Why did they use the term resistance? Because resistance is the English translation of Hamas. Hamas is the Islamic resistance. So they are running programs and events on campus specifically promoting Hamas, and that's very concerning. That is very concerning indeed. And there have been more, uh, possibly other movements for Palestinian rights throughout, uh, through um, the Harvard College Palestine Solidarity Committee. Um, is that the different, or how is this one different? Well, I think that certainly people have a right to advocate their position on the Middle East, and I'm not saying they don't have a right to do that. But you cross a line when you are openly and explicitly supporting terrorist groups, and that's what they're doing on these campuses. They are saying they back what Hamas did. This is not a question of, well, we think this should be the solution or that should be the solution. And I think that's very concerning because that's in essentially lending support to terrorist groups. It may not be material support. They may not be sending money or weapons, but they are sending political support to terrorist groups, groups that are banned in the United States. And I think college administrators needed, need to consider whether that is something they're going to allow on their campuses. I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't, but I think they need to at least take a look at whether open support of terrorist groups is something that crosses a line from free speech into actual uh, you know, uh, conduct that violates campus rules. That's right. Um, people should keep in mind that Hamas is still a terrorist group. And Spain, on that topic, was saying that people should distinguish Palestinians from Hamas. Now, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, Hamas was elected in Gaza in 2006. Hamas, according to all the polling, would win an election both in Gaza and the West Bank if an election were to be held. Of course, the Palestinian Authority doesn't allow elections because Hamas would win. So, yes, Hamas does not represent every single Palestinian, and I think we always need to keep that in mind. But it is representative of Palestinian society as a whole, and so while you can distinguish it, and certainly when it comes to the conduct of war, you have to distinguish that. Civilians who are not involved from military objects. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves. The Palestinians have been a rejectionist movement since the creation of Israel. There were many opportunities for them to get a state that they rejected. So yes, Hamas is not Palestinian society, but it does reflect the attitudes of Palestinian society. Hmm. So right before we go here, uh, your thoughts on how Harvard should have handled the situation? Well, I'm not sure, frankly, there's a lot for Harvard as an institution to do. 
I'm generally not in favor of university administrations forcing their viewpoint onto the campus. On the other hand, Harvard is entitled to have a viewpoint too, and it could issue an unequivocal statement denouncing what Hamas has done and calling it what it was, was an act of attempted genocide, an act of barbarism, and an act equivalent of ISIS. So I don't know that the administration needs to be the cop telling students what to say or what not to say, but I think Harvard should come out with a very clear statement, and they have not done that. The statement they issued was very wishy-washy. Well, thank you so much, William Jacobson. I appreciate your take on this. Thank you. And now we are heading to New York, where thousands gathered near the United Nations to rally for Israel yesterday evening. Similar rallies were held in other cities, including Los Angeles, Miami Beach, Hoboken, and East Meadow, New York. NTD's Kost Hemenes has updates on the rallies. Protesters in support of Israel flooded the streets, singing songs in Hebrew and waving flags. What Hamas did is similar to what the Nazis did in Kristallnacht uh, to, you know, to the Jews, going into houses, dragging people out of their houses, killing people, raping, raping women, raping children. What Hamas did was, I mean, unbelievably horrific. And we're here to say that we have to let Israel and the United States has to support Israel and finally destroying Hamas so that this can't happen again. So those horrors can't happen again to the Jewish people. Only way to fight this is with positivity. We respond with mitzvahs. We respond with doing good deeds, acts of goodness and kindness. Jewish men put on tefillin. Jewish women light candles this Friday night before sunset. Every single person listening to me, do that good deed for your friend. Give that little bit of charity every day. Pray to God. A smaller number of protesters also gather to voice support for Palestine. The state of the occupation of Palestine is a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the Palestinians, it's a tragedy for the Jews. When these pro-Israelis stand up now with Israeli flags and they come to support, what are they supporting? They're not supporting Jewish people. We're standing up on an Israeli flag is endangering Jewish people. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul also gave remarks at the vigil and rally in New York City on Tuesday. I stand here to tell you that New Yorkers will never tolerate evil, whether it's committed here in our homeland or in Israel. We'll never, ever tolerate evil. Adding that New York and Israel stand together and that her state would help because they are united as one family. Rallies in other parts of the country also saw thousands in support of Israel, waving Israeli flags while listening to prayers and speakers. At least 14 Americans died in Saturday's attack by Hamas. According to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, around 20 Americans are still missing, but it remains unclear if they are being held hostage. The rallies come after President Biden condemned the deadly attack against Israel as an act of sheer evil and reaffirmed U.S. support for Israelis, mourning the slaughter of more than 1,000 people. Kost MNS, NTD News. Coming up next, House Republicans will attempt to select a new speaker today. But before that, they are expected to debate on a possible rules change that could speed up the process. So stay tuned. Welcome back. An update on the selection process for the Speaker of the House. Representative Matt Gates, who led the ouster of McCarthy, says he won't make the same move against Jordan or Scalise if they push for a stopgap bill to avoid a government shutdown in November. And now we're going to look a little more closely at this. Please welcome Bart Marcois, the president of Marcois Partners International Corporation and former presidential campaign policy advisor. Bart, thanks for coming on the show live with us. Good morning, Kevin. So what is going to be needed in order for these speaker candidates to get the votes to wield the gavel? Well, there, you mentioned in the uh, teaser before the break a, uh, a possible rule change. Before, they just needed a majority of the GOP caucus in order to go to a floor vote. And that's what led to that embarrassing series of 15 floor votes in front of the whole world with the uh, party looking like it was completely disorganized. But what they've done now is said, 
you know what? You need a majority of the House. You need 217 votes before we will take it to a floor vote. That means they can only have four defections among Republicans. Uh, and all of those votes are going to take place behind closed doors so that you don't get to see the, the, the sausage being made. You simply see the final product when it's presented. So what happens in those closed door votes? Oh, that's, uh, that's where the good stuff happens. The, uh, you've got two candidates. You've got Scalise and uh, Jordan. They're both very good candidates. There's, there's nobody who really strongly opposes any of them. There are some moderates that, that have been opposing Jordan because he was one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, and they're afraid that he might take them off in a, uh, in a uh, direction that would make it hard for them to get reelected in a, in a state like New York or someplace where it's unusual to have a Republican member. But they both, they will go for, they'll have an initial vote and they'll see what the outcome is. And if it's closely tied, then they'll, they, they will go for much longer votes and it'll take a longer process. But if one gets, you know, 170 votes and the other gets 30, then most of the other 30 will probably go to the one that has 170. I think you'll see a, very, a fairly quick process of winnowing out. If by some chance there is a deadlock and it goes many votes, then other candidates will be able to come in and and enter the uh, the race. A deadlock would present another challenge. A couple of things are happening at the same time. They're far from achieving a consensus here in the House. And then Israel is saying that fighting will intensify. The U.S. has obviously supported Israel in funding their Iron Dome defense system. What do you think is going to happen here? Are they going to have the speaker in place in order to get aid to Israel in time? I predict they will. And I, I think that they also will go a step further than just providing aid to Israel. I think that they will take on the the foreign aid that has been given to Hamas by the Biden administration. Biden has given uh, the Palestinians nearly a billion dollars during his presidency. And money is fungible. And that money has been spent by the Hamas leadership in the Gaza Strip on arming the Hamas terrorists. And I think you'll see the House try to cut that funding completely and say, it's time to stop arming terrorists. It is always great hearing your analysis. Bart Marcois, former presidential campaign policy advisor, thank you. Thank you. And continuing with our coverage on Israel, um, we were we spoke with retired naval officer Lieutenant Stephen Rogers about details um, about the U.S. involvement in the war. Take a look. The U.S. is still looking for evidence for Iran's direct involvement in the Hamas attack. Now, how would Iran's, if they would find that um, evidence, how would that change things for the U.S.? Would it affect U.S. involvement in the war, for instance? Well, it would, but uh, look, I believe that there's enough evidence there with Hamas and even Hezbollah uh, bragging about the fact that Iran was involved in the planning stages of this. So I, I have no idea what the White House is waiting for. But to answer your question, uh, when the White House is satisfied, uh, we may have to see direct U.S. military uh, intervention. Uh, right now, we have a, a, a forward power out there. That's our carrier strike group, and that's supposed to serve as a warning to Iran. But uh, before we get militarily involved, uh, we're going to have to have evidence according to what the White House uh, is asking. Hmm. And if that should happen, how much more aid or intervention can the U.S. afford in that case, considering um, NATO has also been warning about low uh, amounts of uh, ammunition for Ukraine and, of course, the war general in Ukraine and uh, Russia? Well, I've got to tell you this, that this may be a uh, time to make a very critical decision to stop uh, sending aid to Ukraine and start sending it to Israel. We've got the uh, uh, ammunition, we've got the weapons, we've got the manpower. We have everything Israel needs to defend themselves. Uh, but uh, we don't have enough if we're going to fight a two-front war. We are fighting a proxy war uh, with Russia and Ukraine. But what's more important to our national security is uh, making sure that the Israelis are defended. So how critical is U.S. aid in the, uh, for Israel? 
very critical. Israel has been our closest ally. There are eyes and ears with regard to the geopolitical situation in the Mideast. Uh, no question about it. Israel is the number one nation that we need to protect and make sure uh, that that nation is not severely damaged. Thank you so much for an in-depth look there, Lieutenant Stephen Rogers. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And now we're heading to Malcolm Hudson in the UK for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. Countries continue to bring back their citizens from Israel. It comes after several international airlines suspended flights to and from Israel after the surprise attack by Hamas. A flight carrying around 200 South Koreans from Tel Aviv arrived in South Korea today. Australia has organized two special flights to bring back citizens from Israel. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said it's difficult to know exactly how many citizens were in the country. Staying with Australia, a Chinese-Australian journalist who was detained in China for three years has returned to Australia. Prime Minister Albanese said Canberra had traded nothing with Beijing for Cheng Lei's release. Chen worked for China's state broadcaster CCTV. A court in Beijing had convicted her of illegally providing state secrets abroad. Another strong earthquake shook western Afghanistan this morning. It comes after an earlier one killed more than 2,000 people in Herat province. Aid groups said the regional hospital received over 110 injured from today's tremor. The 6.3 magnitude earthquake also destroyed hundreds of homes. In Mexico, rescue workers continued to clean up the mess left by Hurricane Lydia. The storm slammed into the country's Pacific coast overnight, leaving one person dead and leading to significant flooding in western states. Lydia is expected to continue producing heavy rainfall as it moves inland. Damage to an undersea natural gas pipeline cable connecting Finland and Estonia appears to have been caused by external activity. Norway had already identified a probable explosion nearby. Finland and Estonia are both NATO allies. That's all from me. Back to you both. Thank you, Malcolm. Well, with all these uh, flights canceled, all these foreigners in Israel are now, they, they're kind of stuck, so they're now looking for the government for help. For example, I think there were like a thousand Canadians. Um, I saw reports talking about 12,000 Australians being in Israel, so. Yeah, it definitely has international impact as there are people from the United States to Cambodia to Canada and others among the 1,200 people killed in Israel. And now Canada is actually pledging to send military aircraft to evacuate its citizens. That's right. So hopefully they will be getting out very, very soon. And this is the end of our program at this point. So we'll keep you updated with the latest information on the war. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. That's it for the morning news here. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.